Hello and welcome again to another exciting edition of Lost in Science. Woo! Woo! That's not an owl in the studio with me. That's actually Chris co-presenting. My name's Stu and uh, on this week's show, Claire is actually going to be talking about probiotics. And you've probably heard of probiotics. They are marketed as a cure-all for all of your... Uh, digestive ailments. So that's like um, good bacteria that, well, supposedly good bacteria that you eat to improve your gut health. Yeah, and I guess they, I think they basically just took the uh, the op- the opposing uh, prefix to antibiotics yeah. and went, well, if antibiotics are good for getting rid of bacteria, we'll make probiotics good for encouraging them. Yeah. But uh, there's actually been a whole bunch of research because it's a big area at the moment of interest. Um, but there's a lot of actual research in what do they do? Can they measure the supposed beneficial effects of probiotics and what do they actually do in your gut once they're in there? Um, and it's probably, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a, uh, a surprise, I think, um, mm. what the results actually were. So we'll hear from Claire later in the show. But Chris... It is. It is the. Uh, it is the. I guess the awards season in. It science. really is. We had the the Archies or the Archies um, a couple of weeks ago. The the Eureka Prizes that we like to call the the Archies after Archimedes. The Medes. Yeah, the Medes. <laughs> um, so yeah, we had them. Um, I think we've got the the Nobel Prizes coming up in October normally. Yeah. Um, the I think the Prime Minister's Prize for Science is around sometime soon. But the big ones. Big international ones have recently been announced. The one we always look forward to every year. That's right. And that is, of course, the Ig Nobel Prizes. And these is, this is the research what they put it, that makes you laugh and then makes you think. And, and it is from the, the original Journal of Improbable Research. Something like that, they, yeah. They, they set yeah. it up. And nearly 20 years ago, this is the 18th. Okay. The 18th first annual uh, Ig Nobel Prizes I kept noticing on there. On their materials. No, 28th, first annual. Oh, the 28th, first annual. 28th, sorry. It's nearly 30 years. Yes. Um, So, yeah, it started a really long time ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, you and I just began through some of our favourites from that, weren't we? Yeah, there are some great great historical research going on that have been awarded uh, the Ig Nobel Prizes this year. Fantastic. So stay tuned for that and uh, on with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and we are talking about the annual Ig Nobel Prizes. This is the awards 
uh, for research that makes you laugh and then makes you think. It's always always a good, reliable source of amusing science stories this time of year. I think that's the main purpose of it. It is really, and it is you know, it's it's kind of I guess uh, poking good humoured fun at the Nobel prizes, but. It is. It's actual real science. It's not. It's not made up. It's actually published journal articles that they that they nominate for these prizes. Oh, mostly there's, there's usually um, a couple of they throw in some joke ones as well. Often they'll award you know say um, a prize to some public official who's done something outrageous as well. But um, yeah, it is. It is generally um, proper science. And as a, the slogan is, makes you laugh and makes you think. So it's. it's it sounds amusing at first. When you look into it, there's actual real science going on there. And they're, they're awarded. Some of them are the traditional Nobel Prize categories. Like there's always a Peace Prize and there's always a um, a Medicine Prize, I believe. But then they have a few um, kind of – basically, they make up the categories to suit the research they found. And, and often they don't really match up all that well. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to it. So we're just going to look through some of our favourites. There's, there's quite a few categories. We'll look through some of our favourites. And I think it's only appropriate for us to start with um, the Australian uh, contingent. The Australians were recognised, as usual, actually. Australians usually do pretty good in the Ig Nobel Prizes. But is this because we do lots of improbable research, or is it just that we're really hardworking? I think we do improbable research. I think I have a bit of a sense of humour. I think also, well, a lot of the Australian ones are done on Australian animals, which are quite improbable themselves, I think. And so, Well, that's true. Yeah. That is true. This one was not, though. No, no. This, this is was... the um, this is the literature prize. Would you like to tell us what this is about? Uh, yeah, so I, I I noticed a bit of a, a work orientation to some of these prizes this year. They seem to be sort of focused around going to work and being in the workplace. But the uh, the literature prize went to a paper uh, published, which was called "Life Is Too Short to RTFM: How Users Relate to Documentation and Excess Features in Consumer Products." Now, RTFM, I have heard a variation of the uh, of the acronym. Um, but in this case, they claim it stands for Read the Field Manual. Oh, yeah, the F definitely stands for Field. Definitely What, what stands, else could it stand for? Well, well any other thing, Farm Manual, yeah, possibly. Yeah. All sorts of F words could yeah. go in there. But look, basically, they, uh, they, they figured out that the more complex a piece of technology is, the less likely you are to read the manual, which kind of goes against what we would think is common sense. As far yeah. as, you know, the more complicated a piece of technology that you're using, you would think you would have to learn how to use that technology first. But in fact, people are less likely to uh, to actually plough through the technical manual. They just jump in and start using the thing. Yeah. They also looked at um, this, how this compared across different demographics, as different demographic criteria as well, didn't they? Yeah. Well, yeah. What did they find in the uh, in the demographics? Well, one of the, I mean, some of, the, in, some of them weren't too surprising, like uh, young people tend to read the manual less than older people, which mm-hmm. kind of we would expect. Uh, one interesting one was that people with, the more education people had, the more they claimed that they said they did not read the manual. And this may either, there's perhaps many reasons for this that they posited and it's really hard to say but that was kind of a surprising you would tend to think that the eggheads would um read more well yeah but except maybe maybe people who have higher levels of education think they can figure things out for themselves possibly and they don't need you know it's oh well that'll just be instructions for people who aren't clever enough to work it out yeah possibly um it's it's yeah it's it's kind of it's hard to say or then maybe they just um were more pragmatic in what they were doing. I don't know. Um, another interesting one, this is this one that kind of said to me that men, well, they claim, reported that they read the manual more, 
than women did. Um, so, so that's kind of an interesting thing that men will actually read the manual more. Maybe men are a bit more nerdy around that. But the interesting thing that came out of that they were talked about in this section was that uh, they also tested people on their proficiency at using the products. And men and women didn't perform differently. Like they're each as proficient. So they can tend to suggest that actually reading the manual doesn't help. Certainly, if if it, if it is true that men read the manual more, it's not helping yeah. them do yeah. better at it than women reading or women not reading the manual. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the other things they said was that that a lot of this technology is over featured. Yeah, that was something they found that a lot of the things that people wanted to do with the technology uh, was very simple, and a lot of you know phones and computers and that sort of thing have more features than the average person uses. Yeah. And actually that they get really frustrated if they have to look at the manual because they just want to do something really simple like make a phone call or, or send a text message or something like that. Exactly. And this is where this becomes, you know, real research. There's so much more we could actually say about this. I mean, I found it interesting they're saying that when looking at that over features of products that um, people will buy a product because it has more features, but then they'll get frustrated by those extra features. So getting it's in like, the way of how them. do you <laughs> how do you satisfy people's buying impulse compared to their usage impulses? And that's yeah, it's, look, it is. This is why it is genuine research. Like yeah. it's tackling problems that affect us all in it, their it does, it does make you laugh, and then it makes you think. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Well, looking at uh, another example, um, I wanted to pull out the uh, the nutrition one is kind of one of those headline-grabbing ones. And this was a prize looking at, well, looking at the nutritional value of human cannibalism. And so, I mean, you know, I've heard you know stories of people being forced into cannibalism. The Donner Party is the famous yeah. American uh, pioneers who ended up cannibalizing each other because they ran out of food. But what is the research saying that... Well, this is it's actually looking at archaeological, if you like paleontological almost research. So yes, it's like people can be forced into cannibalism. Modern the, the modern world, cannibalism is quite rare, happens for unusual reasons generally. Mm. Um but we look back in the in the past, um, and we find bones that have evidence perhaps of cannibalism and we're trying to work out what was the reason for that. And they're often, this is like for, you know, Homo sapiens, but also Homo neanderthalensis, uh, Homo erectus, and these other species of hominins. And trying to work out is, was it driven by nutrition? Were they trying to get nutrition from, from cannibalism? Or was it for ritual reasons or some other um, sort of intergroup conflict or something like that? And so what they did is they basically, they analyzed the calorie content of a human body and said, you know, how much would that feed um, a group of people. Um, and it, the results weren't that surprising that, you know, humans kind of have about much nutrition as similar-sized animals, um, but less than larger animals. Like, apparently, we pale into significance against a mammoth. And well, you of might course think, we would, but they're so much smaller. So you may think, what is, is this just telling us the obvious? But essentially, the point is that if you were to actually have a strategy of hunting humans for food, I mean, as we all know, humans are the most dangerous game. Mm. So... They're, they're basically assuming that uh, other hominins would be hard to catch because they would be as smart as you and good at fighting back or hiding. So it's possibly not going to be a good strategy to say we're going to e- exist by eating other humans. So it might be more opportunistic uh, cannibalism or tied up with ritual as well. So it's more so, cultural reasons perhaps driving it. You, it's hard, essentially saying that you know, nutrition alone is perhaps not a good you know, reason for wanting to eat other hominins because they're going to be hard to catch. And if the amount of nutritional value for the effort is probably not worth it. 
So it's, yeah, it, it makes more sense. If, if a hunt takes X amount of time, then it's better to get something really big yeah. than something... Or something easy to catch. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Um, another one uh, that I saw, which I thought was very interesting, was... Um, and, and I mentioned earlier that they sort of workplace-related uh, topics. This one was about um, uh, work-related stress. So, so when when you feel that you've been treated unjustly in the workplace by your supervisor, um, they they were looking at well, what can you do to relieve that feeling of injustice? And what they did was they uh, basically got employees to think of a time uh, they were in trouble with their boss at work and felt that they had been unjustly treated and then they were asked to use uh, pins and a lighter and pliers on a voodoo doll to represent their boss um, and they were allowed to continue doing that for a minute on the on the voodoo doll and then they were asked if they felt better afterwards after uh, after being able to take the pliers and the and the uh, lighter to the voodoo doll and uh, overwhelmingly People were happier after they had attacked well, the voodoo doll. Did they have like a control group with just a, a stress ball? Because it sounds similar to that. I like take your frustration out on something like that rather than. Well, I think I think their point was that that it made them feel like there was a perception that they had had mm. justice served by being able to do that to the voodoo doll. And how did the bosses feel? Did they experience? Well, they, any they were of not. The they were not. Okay. Uh, they were not asked okay. about their uh, their response to the voodoo right. dolls. Um, but yeah, that one was called, uh, writing a wrong retaliation on a voodoo doll symbolizing an abusive supervisor restores justice. And that won the Ig Nobel prize for economics, um, okay. presumably because it's cheaper to, uh, torture voodoo dolls than actual people possibly. Well, the chemistry prize, I'm happy to report, went to some scientists from Portugal for a study that was published in 1990. So this is a classic one. And what they looked at was how good human saliva is at cleaning things. So when this is like, is it surfaces or is it is it little children's faces? Because I know my mother used to attack our faces with a handkerchief and try and get the you know, Milo off. Well, this is this is actually more specific than that. This is um, published in the journal Studies in Conservation. So it's about, like, um, art conservation and that sort of thing. Um, they noticed that, basically reported that it's, it's common knowledge that conservators will use saliva to clean off in, like, um, gold leaf surfaces. Okay. Um, but maybe also, um, you know, um, ceramics, um and even some painted, yes, yeah, some, some oil paintings, those sort of things, painted cork, this kind of stuff, and that you know people use human saliva, and it's, it's, a, it's a common practice still today that people do that. So they had they analysed human saliva to try and work out what the what the active ingredient was, and it turns out it is it's alpha amylase, which is the the enzyme that you know div, uh, dissolves starch and turns it into simple oh, yeah, sugars. So it's, yeah, so it's the enzyme that breaks down starch yeah. in our in our early digestion. So essentially, what you're basically what the saliva is, it's a very weak enzymatic cleaning solution that's safe to use because it's not like hazardous fumes or anything like that, <laughs> um, and is not damaging to serves like like gold and that sort of thing, and so it gets the dirt and grime off without damaging it, and it's not that like just spit on it, but they will again. You say use a little 
cotton bud or something like that and then and then wipe, wet that and wipe it. And this is, yeah, commonly used by conservatives. It's perhaps not the thing you want to hear. Like when you go to an art museum, you see some old artworks, you don't want to think that They have to put up signs saying, do not spit on the paintings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it is, you know, there is a reason it's done and it, it does seem to work. Well, you know, I mean, spit polish is a thing that people have said for years, you know. It's mostly for shoes, but, yeah. you know, it's, I guess there's something in it after all. Okay. So, look, if you want to look up the Ig Nobel Prizes, it's not hard to find them uh, on the internet. If you put it in, it's just I-G-N-O-B-E-L prize, uh, and you'll find their web page, which details all of the winners throughout the almost 30-year history of the of the prize. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's some other interesting uh, topics that will make you laugh and make you think uh, that you'll find in there. course on uh, fermentation of foods the other day intentional fermentation of foods not the unintentional fermentation that I've been doing for years in my fridge we're talking like kimchi and sauerkraut that's right we're talking kimchi <laughs> and sauerkraut fermented fruits um, all the stinky delicious things that go along with it um, now they are a fad right now. They are. They're wildly popular, some would say. They are wildly popular. Yeah, and part of the reason is because um, they are known as a source of good live bacteria. So uh, bacteria such as um, Pediococcus and Lactobacillus mm-hmm. are supposed to be good bacteria and promote gut health, um, help with digestion. Yeah. I was just going to say there's also good reason to eat fermented foods historically people in some parts of the world such as northern europe didn't get enough vitamins during the winter so they would eat things like sauerkraut which were fermented with bacteria and the bacteria would produce extra vitamins that would keep those people alive during winter oh, i thought it was just a way of like keeping their vegetables kind of pickling it's a, it's them a story it's a storage thing as well but apparently they they benefited from b vitamins particularly being okay. produced by the fermentation process yeah that's exactly right and um so yeah not only is it a digestion thing with these live bacteria but um yeah extra vitamins for people who might have um might be vegan and might ha- find it difficult to access those vitamins um and it also I don't know whether the vitamins would probably have something to do with this boost in immunity that a lot of people are looking for when they're eating fermented foods that are associated with fermented foods. There's, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of uh, people make all sorts of claims there is about a lot of claims out there. Yeah. Um, so, but this idea of probiotics improving health—it's really been supercharged recently. There's a huge market out there for commercial probiotic supplements and now millions of people are taking these probiotics to boost their um, gut flora or their microbiome as it's called um, or restore their gut ecosystem you can call it any of these things mm. why, is it, why is it gut flora and not gut fauna but 
I have often wondered. Well, yeah. it's really old terminology because once upon a time, all life was either animal or plant. And they decided that bacteria were more like plants, so therefore they're in the plant kingdom. So it's microflora. Even though they're Should not... Should we update that? They, Should we start have... calling it microfauna? Well, I don't well, think they're really either. No, they've got their own kingdom yeah. now, so... Microbiome. I guess if you were yeah. playing animal, vegetable or mineral, where would you put your bacteria, Claire? That's smaller a really than, good, good question. Smaller than a bread box, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, 20 questions. Yeah. Leave them in the bottom of the fridge like she usually yeah. does. Um, so, yeah, this... Anyway, this... Uh, microbiome, um, uh, probiotic market is booming and um, not just by people who are going out and, and buying them. This is being supported by a number of doctors. So apparently over 60% of doctors now, it's estimated, are prescribing probiotics um, to people who are being prescribed antibiotics. So as a way to supplement their um, their natural microflora or microbiome, gut bacteria, after they have a course of antibiotics. Also, is the idea that you're taking antibiotics and the antibiotics are going to kill off the good bacteria that are in your intestines, and so you should top them up with some... So you should top them up with some probiotics, yeah. How, how do you know you're chucking the right ones down there? Well, that's a good question, exactly. So th there, are, there are so many questions um, about their effectiveness, um, whether they actually work at all. Um, and, you know, there's this whole sort of like you buy something off the shelf and you expect it to sort of like fit with your specific microbiome. Um, but does it really? Mm. Um, yeah, there's very limited research out there, um, which is where immunologist Iran Elenav of the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel comes in. Right. Yes. So him and a team of researchers looked at what is happening in the gut when people take probiotics. In the past, this type of research tested fecal samples, uh, poop samples. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah for <laughs> as a way of telling what uh, gut microbes um, were present. Oh, I see. Yes, but... So they, yeah, they, they did an initial study and didn't they find that what's in your poo is not necessarily the same as what's in your gut? Oh. Yes. So, but but it, I'm sure they would have got, they would have passed the pee test. Is that a joke? No, I think it's like the pee it's significance. A, it's a, like it's a, a probability statistics joke. Oh, yeah, okay. it's like... They passed the pee test, but they didn't pass the P-double-O test. No. <laughs> God. I'll keep working on this. Uh, uh, yeah, you're, pull, pull you're a, exactly right. Pull up a stool. We could be here for some time. As, so you're right, Stu. They sampled the gut microbes um, of healthy volunteers um, using endoscopes and colonoscopies instead because they found that the gut uh, microbes um, that they found in the fecal samples wasn't the same as the gut microbes that they found in the lower intestines. Yeah, and they found, they found they were very um, regional. So it depended which part of the intestinal tract they took the sample from as to what bacteria actually came out. So there's sort of like a succession of different things as it goes through. Which is incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, just like, you know, different cultures. Well, like, I mean, literally, yeah. If, literally. If, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because as you digest food, 
it gets broken down into different products as it passes through your digestion. So one set of bacteria work on breaking down certain parts of the food that you eat, and then it's broken down into components that are then broken down further by different bacteria and so on all the way through. Yeah. So, I mean, it, what, what this means is um, a lot of research which has been drawing correlations about what is happening in the gut, um, but using fecal um, f- poo samples um, as an indicator is actually quite inaccurate. So you need to go to the site you really need to get in there and go to the site and test the site if you want to see what species of bacteria and what's actually happening in there. Mm. Um, Also, interestingly, the research has showed that although the probiotics uh, colonised in the guts of some people, in others, probiotics just flush straight through. So there's no way of figuring out from a poo sample whether probiotics in your gut have taken hold or not oh so what they're saying is we were they were testing poo samples for the probiotic bacteria but in some people they had just passed they'd swallowed the probiotics and they just went straight through without even stopping yeah. for a holiday yeah that didn't even stop for a holiday huh. um i have another question about probiotics yeah um so to get to get to your intestine they have to go through the stomach Right, and the stomach is like a very hostile, acidic environment. So they do survive, don't they? That that journey is this what we're saying? Yeah. Well, they must because they do colonize some people's lower intestine. Okay. Yeah. But just not everyone. But just not everyone's. Yeah. Okay. And I don't think I don't think they've figured out what was the difference between the ones that they did colonize and the ones they didn't. They don't. They haven't. Hmm. No. It's new science. We don't. That's know. right. We don't know. But, the but I guess this is why. I guess you have. I mean, I. I, I think you, this is, that's another way of getting them in there. I think is there, there is another way of getting them in there. So the researchers went one step further. So they looked at the effect of probiotics on gut flora of people who have taken antibiotics. So in theory, if you ta- if uh, you've got people who have taken antibiotics and it cleans out their natural gut flora, so there's a um, absence of your gut flora there. They then took 21 volunteers um, who had all taken the same antibiotic and were assigned to one of three groups. So the first group, uh, the gut flora was allowed to recover on its own. The second group was instructed to take probiotic, uh, some sort of probiotic to repopulate the gut flora. And then lucky group number three was treated with a fecal transplant. Or a, what do you call it, Chris? I think the technical term is transpusion. <laughs> now, now, technically, it's, is this a fecal transplant? Well, okay, so it was a fecal transplant of their own crap. Oh, they saved so it. So that before they took the antibiotics, <sighs> they took their poo. Um, so this was, you know, obviously poo with... Um, <laughs> with a whole lot of microbes that um, are inherent to them. So, you know, their own microbes. They then froze it, I don't know, strained it, froze it, did all the things that you Yeah, I'm sure you could look up the methods in uh, the journal <laughs> Cell if you really want to yes. see how they did it. But So they put, it, as- it, up. They put it aside. <laughs> they put it aside. They gave, um, they gave them antibiotics and then um, they transplanted... The feces. Okay. What I want to know, I, I, I don't know whether you, you've read in detail the methods for this paper or not. Oh, look, I did some cursory 
research. So go on. Was it like a, a blinded study? Did they have to give everyone... <laughs> So they, because you know, you would know if you're given a, a transfusion, obviously. So maybe they have to like, you know. Give some placebo transfusion. Yes, yes, to a everyone. Placebo. Okay, so there was no reference of placebo. So I guess that means it wasn't um, as blinded as it could have been. Okay. They could have given everyone placebos um, and maybe they would have found some different things. Um, <laughs> but what did they what did they find compared to the probiotics? That's the important thing that, that we, is the we important want to know. thing. Um, well, firstly, I just want to say that that fecal transplants do have um, there's there's quite a lot of science behind fecal transplants and they're showing quite promising um, results with a lot of uh, with a lot of diseases such as um, people who are infected with something called Clostridium difficile in the gut. Yeah, it produces a really nasty form of diarrhea. Diarrhea and yeah. fever, and it can yeah. be fatal. So these infections can reoccur after antibiotic treatment, but are cured 90% of the time after a fecal transplant. So, you know, fecal transplants are really hot and hot right now, hot and steamy right but, now. But only for certain things like that. It's not just like, it's not a cure-all. No, and don't try this at home, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> I digress. So we have the three um, post-antibiotics. Um, so in the probiotic group, these probiotic mo- microbes took over the gut flora, apparently quite potently. They, um, they established themselves so much that the probiotic microbes prevented uh, the person's normal gut flora from returning for up to six months. So they pretty much got into the gut and then took it over. For up to six months. Is that a bad thing? Um, well, when you're trying to, I guess, re-establish your own uh, gut microbes, um, then then it 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 can be a bad thing. Okay, but you just got the like, Jalna's selection of of gut <laughs> yes. microbes instead. Really. Yeah, so you you probably got you know the the kind of lactobacillus and things like that, which are easy to culture. Yeah in those kind of uh, supplements and probably missing a whole bunch of other stuff which isn't probably usually included in those uh, supplements. Maybe you've got a less diverse, less uniquely you microflora. Okay. Yeah. And, you um, know, there's there's more bacterial cells in your body than there are you cells. So, um, you know, you, you're being taken over by Jalna's home brand of bacteria. The thing is also that I guess, you know, this field is so new that we don't really know totally the effects of um, what's um, what's good and what's bad. Yeah, yeah, we don't know what the, what the bacteria do, what and what, it, yeah, we need to have. There's no recipe for an optimal microbiome. Yeah, exactly. Um, but interestingly, you know, what everyone wants to know, the results of the fecal transplant. So the with the fecal transplant group, their, um, the gut microflora returned to normal in days and mm. they were back to healthy. So what the researchers are suggesting is that probiotics um, off the shelf, you know, the ones that you just buy at the supermarket, are probably not a silver bullet, a one-size-fits-all solution and um, may actually not be as harmless as we all think. Um, and the future of healthy guts is probably healthy poos.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.